Can we pray together before we start? Jesus, um, we get to approach the word today in full confidence. But more than that, we get to approach the throne of God in full confidence. We are your children. We are called children of the Most High God. And your Holy Spirit dwells with us to encourage us and exhort us to follow you more closely. There's a word for every one of us. And I just pray that whatever it is that you want to do to minister to us today, that we accept that and we receive it. And God, we do something about it that is meaningful and purposeful, most of all, to bring glory to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. December 31st, 2001, I had just turned 21 years old, along with some of our high school mates. And we decided to go downtown and uh, celebrate the new year together. As we walked down the street, we encountered a couple who was in an altercation, we'll call it, mostly verbal at that time, but we could sense that it was escalating. And so as, as we approached the couple, I, I kind of paused and I wrestled in my brain, as probably many of you would do, is what, what, what should I do anything in this moment in time? And discretion at that moment said it's, things seem to be not going any further, so maybe it's just best to move on. So I did. But my best friend Jake decided otherwise. Now Jake is one of the most pure-hearted human beings I've ever met. And not that I'm an imposing figure myself, although back then I was about 15 pounds heavier of muscle and probably slightly more daunting than I am today, but by no means is I, you know, a, a cage <laughs> MMA fighter or anything like that. So Jake decided that he was going to go toe-to-toe with this gentleman and things began to get a little ugly. So I moved Jake aside and I stepped in. Uh, fortunately, I was able to start diffusing things with this gentleman. And as he departed from my presence, the lady approached me and began to start pushing me and amongst other things. And I'm thinking to myself, lady, like, what are you doing? I was trying to come to your aid and I, I cannot comprehend what's going on right now. So I'm kind of trying to like keep her at bay when out of nowhere, here comes a lefty. Boom, right in the nose. Broke my nose in three places, which is why it's crooked today. So I, I probably should have mentioned that. You're going to be staring at it the whole sermon now, I'm sure. But that's why I have a crooked nose. Um, and most of all, probably the worst thing was he ruined my brand new Abercrombie and Fitz shirt. Um, had blood all over it. So anyway, poor me, right? Uh, I, was, I had bigger concerns at the time. But I think about that, that night a lot. And if you've ever been in a fight, and I hope most of you haven't, but if you have, I think one can't help but to replay that in your mind and think, you know, what, what could I have done differently? You know, did I even, did I even land a shot? <laughs> not that I, that's not my mindset. This was in my BC days, just to be clear, okay? Have not been in a physical altercation since I came to know Christ, but it is what it is. And, and fighting is, it's a touchy subject for me. You know, my mother was physically abused by my stepfather, and it's kind of a soft spot in my heart. And I think back, like, where did I go wrong in that matter? You know, I was trying to do the good guy thing, so to speak. My, my mo most awesome fighting moment, though, was in third grade when I did a, a flying sidekick off of a short brick wall right into the chest of Leonard Lucero. And before you feel bad for Leonard, just know that he was not only a bully, but he was also wearing a big poofy down jacket that day, so he, he didn't get hurt. But it was flipping sweet. I mean, it was like the coolest move I've ever done, and it was all great until he caught me and punched me in the face three times. You see a trend here? I don't think I was destined to be a good fighter because 
my nose is a lot closer to my enemy than theirs is to me usually for some reason. And my Lebanese heritage taken over. It's the way God wanted it, I think. But some friends lately have been asking me, Christian friends particularly, and they're asking me, Brian, is it time for Christians to stand up and start fighting? One specifically cited an example. He said, hey, if Antifa and all the rioters showed up at the front door of your church, would you be there to defend it? And I took a moment and I paused. I, I thought about this. And, I, and my response was, the church is, I, I love our building, but it's just a building. It's a, it's a material possession that God has given us and God should choose to take it back, then so be it. And I'm not saying that's an official board stance per se. I, I'm just, it was in the moment that I was in and that's the best answer I had. But if there were people inside, just mind you, it's a very different story, okay? So, so I'm, I'm processing this, and it doesn't stop there. I, I've had friends, even Christian friends, that don't even ask my opinion. They just vomit their agenda all over me, almost to say as if that brute force is the only way to take up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And, and I just, I, I say to them, my response is, we, ha we have to look at Scripture. What did you see in the New Testament? What happened there? And I would ask you as my, my faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, how would you answer the question? Is it okay to fight? And what is it okay to fight for? How many times in the New Testament can you recount instances where God or Jesus commanded or suggested that somebody take up physical or, or emotional violence to advance the kingdom of heaven? I can't, I can't think of an example but what I can think of is, is the disciple Peter when they were coming after Jesus to, to take him and he whipped out a sword and sliced off the, the dude's ear. I mean, I remember that, but Jesus was like, nah, don't do that. That's, I'm, you know, I'm, this cup is going to be poured out. I need to do this. So maybe there is one that I'm missing, but, but I really don't see that in scriptures. And in fact, the scriptures actually teach quite the opposite and we're going to see that here shortly. So if you've been around recently, we've been studying the book 2 Timothy, which is Paul's second letter to his protege, Timothy. <clears throat> and um, previously in this book, I think Paul has been pretty prophetic in speaking about what today looks like. So I want to read to you in 2 Timothy 3 that was covered just a week or two ago, but, but listen to this and see how this applies. Paul said, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, Proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now I'm curious how many pandemics and presidential elections and recessions have ever taken place where somebody looked at that scripture and said, oh man, Paul was talking right to us in that day and age. I mean, maybe there was some, but it certainly sounds pretty relevant to today for us, for you and me. And so he continues on, and in today's scripture, 2 Timothy 4, this is toward the end of that book, in, in verses 1 through 8, this is going to be our scripture. Listen and see if you see it further here. In the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead 
And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, believers, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. And discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now the key passage to me in that scripture is in seven, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff, and we're going to talk about that, but specifically in seven through eight there toward the end, when Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith, which corresponds precisely with today's sermon title. So let's turn our attention to Paul's comment where he says he fought the good fight. Now that statement to me implies that we as Christians are supposed to fight. So for my rough and tumble brothers and sisters, you can sleep at peace tonight knowing that it's okay to fight, all right? But before you show back up at work and start performing your best John Cena wrestling moves on your cubicle mates, Maybe we should take a moment and really better understand what are we fighting for and what kind of fight is acceptable. And so we're going to start today by answering the question, what is good? He doesn't say in there precisely just to fight. He says fight the good fight. So we need to understand what good is. And one of the most um, challenging Christian apologetic opportunities I've ever had, which began about six months ago, a guy that I met at a wedding, and his name was Paul. Dr. Paul, in fact. And Paul is probably one of the smartest people I've ever known in my life. He has two PhD degrees from Cambridge University in the UK, one of the most prestigious in the world. And Paul is a self-professed agnostic, which means that he believes there might be a God, there could be a God, but he's not convinced that, that it, there is one or that it's certainly not the God of the Bible. Now, Paul had gone through a divorce, was a Christian, was a believer, gone through a divorce, and his Christian wife wrecked his faith, okay? You know there's two sides to every coin. So Paul posed the question to me amongst what equated to about six weeks of debates, and mind you, it, it remained very civil and very loving between us, and I was so grateful for that. But Paul posed this question to me, and I still wrestle with it today, and maybe you do as well. He said, Brian, if there is a God, and it really is this God of the Bible, then how does he allow suffering to happen? And so I started back from the beginning with him when God gave his creation, Adam and Eve, a choice. And he said, I'm going to give you the option to listen to me and pursue me or to pursue your own ways. And of course, I think we all know the outcome of that situation. Adam and Eve chose their own will. And so when God created us, you and me, he created us with this option to either choose him or not to choose him. God is good. Satan is evil. 
So we have a choice. We either choose good and we choose God, which they failed to do, and there are consequences of that throughout the life that we're going to live on earth until we get to heaven, or we choose other. And there are two different outcomes depending on what we choose. So I, I built that foundation with Paul to establish what good is and what bad is. And I think that's very important. We're going to understand fighting the good fight. Okay? So if God is good, then to fight the good fight would implicitly mean fight for the things of God and pursue him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay, now you might recall in that passage there in 7 and 8 that Paul relates fighting the good fight to keeping the faith. He said that separated by one comma there. And I think it's important to understand why he put those together, why he grouped them together. And so what he simply meant by fighting the good fight and further keeping the faith is, first of all, to keep Jesus front and center in your life. When you keep the faith, you keep Jesus front and center. Now, Whatever good has happened in your life as you have walked with God and Jesus have come because of him. He is the source of all things good. And, and when you wake up in the morning, you say, Lord, your will be done. And you're praying for those answered prayers and those breakthroughs and things like that. They, they come from God. So he is your source of all things good and he is your source for inspiration. You and I are inspired to do good things, not because the good works get us to heaven, but because there's something inside of us that produces good works. That's keeping the faith. Secondly, keeping the faith means to fight to uphold biblical values. Your worldview, the filter through which you think and act about anything and everything has to pass through the filter of the Bible. What does the scripture say about this decision, this action, the way I'm going to look at certain people in my life, what I watch on TV, and so on and so forth? And thirdly, Keeping the faith means to fight to bring others to Jesus. And in this case, I think of the word keep as in the word preserve. What does it mean to preserve the faith? I mean, it means to, to share the gospel, to share truth, to be a testimony, to be a witness. In the early church, they called it the way. It was, it was the way, right? It was, it, Jesus was the way to the Father, the way to everlasting life, and we need to preserve that. Now, I'm confident that even if you and I fail, and we, we often do, the Holy Spirit's still going to do a work in people's hearts and minds, no matter what we do. But I do know that God likes to use his elect, his chosen people, to advance the kingdom. One of the most fascinating statements that Paul makes, in my opinion, through the entire New Testament, he wrote some two-thirds of it, was a statement that he made in 1 Corinthians 9. And he said, I became all things for the sake of the gospel. He became, he was willing to become whatever he had to become to advance the kingdom. Now, there were some boundaries. There were clear boundaries. He was not willing to do anything illegal, unethical, or immoral. But he would allow himself to be molded, and he would shift his positioning slightly, depending on who he was around, for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God. And he understood that, like Jesus, the key to living a winsome life for Christ was starting with establishing common ground with people that don't believe. Establishing common ground. What do we have in common, and how do we focus on those things? He effectively chose to build a relationship bridge to where he could grab the hand of a person, walk them across that bridge, and introduce them to Jesus Christ. And I understand why he chose that, and often tried to do that myself. 
But I only bring this up because to me, keeping the faith does not mean to shut yourself off from other people. It does not mean that. And it's far beyond me how many people with opposing worldviews and how many unbelievers God has brought into my life, guys like Paul, Dr. Paul. And frankly, as time goes on, I, I speak less and less about my sociopolitical perspective than more. And, I, and I've asked myself, why do I choose to do that? Why am I not standing on a box with a bullhorn preaching all this non maybe some of it's biblical, but all these subjective opinions about what I think about the world? And you might be of the mindset, listen, Sump, I am just tired. I'm fed up. And frankly, if somebody doesn't agree with me, bye-bye. Okay, and I, I can't say I fault you for that. But the, and, the, and that's, that may be where you're at today, you're just tired. But hear me on this for just a minute. If I just constantly spread, um, what's a better word for that, boldly share my thoughts over and over and over on my social media outlets and whatever platforms I have, over time, I'm going to start rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. I can, I can guarantee that. And what I'm doing slowly over time is I'm chiseling away at the opportunity for people to hear my heart and the truth about the most important vote they're ever going to make in their life, the vote to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Your trust and your credibility goes out the window when all you care about is wah, 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 wah all day long you're going to ruin the opportunity for people to really trust and listen to you. Last, uh, maybe it was two weeks ago at the men's breakfast, we had a great time. There was probably 20 men that gathered outside the church here. There's another one coming up in September, just a plug for that, men, early September. I think it's Saturday the 5th at 8 o'clock. But we gathered and we engaged in this conversation about what does it mean to be a man pursuing Christ today? And this concept of being the aroma of Christ came up. Maybe you can remember that from Scripture. What does being the aroma of Christ look like? And Pastor Mark, who I've always loved his playful banter, but his love for Christ and certainly for children. He's our, our youth pastor in the church. But he, he told a story about he was of the aroma. He was cooking for his wife, Becky, and his family uh, in the house. And Becky walked in. She smelled this amazing food. She was like, oh my gosh, that smells wonderful. Well, interestingly, just beyond the kitchen in their house, they have a patio door. And on that patio door is a like synthetic grass area where the dogs get to go potty. And he said, Becky went through that house with this beautiful smell, opened the door, and all of a sudden, the smell of dog poo filled her senses. Okay? And I think some of us today, we have people in our kitchen that are smelling this beautiful championship prime rib recipe that's, that's cooking in the oven. And they're sharing with us and we're telling stories and we're talking about life. And just when you get to that precipice of breakthrough with that person, what do we do? We walk over to the sliding door. And a cool breeze comes in and the smell of hot steamy poo hits us in the face. Forgive my crass analogy there, but... It was funny, and I mean, it is kind of funny, except for that's what a lot of us do, and all of a sudden, that person's lost all appetite for the good that they smelled and that they were receiving from us. I, I, I pray that that doesn't happen, and, and so sometimes I, I know many people, and I know many people in this church and believers all throughout the world mean well, and we're spinning our wheels to 
share the things that we believe most passionately about in life. But we're not really focused on the things that we're supposed to do, the things that God said for us to do. And I liken it to this. I'll give you an analogy. Many of you know I I played football for a number of years after college. And if you're not really attuned and understand the game of football, I played wide receiver. So I was the position that, that runs and catches the ball. And in fact, one of the key elements to football strategy is running what's called combinations of routes, where one person runs a certain direction and the other person close to them runs a different direction, and you get to move the defenders where you want them so that somebody can get open and catch the pass. And it would irk me to no end when somebody would run the wrong route. And one of my teammates used to do this all the time, and I'll leave him nameless, but when George would run the wrong route, I... I would drive me crazy. And not only would nobody catch a pass and we wouldn't move the ball down the field, but the quarterback is waiting and waiting and waiting for somebody to get open and then he gets pummeled into the ground because somebody didn't do their job. It, it's, it was really frustrating for me. And I think sometimes we're running really hard and fast, but we're not running the route that was called. And in fact, you and I have a coach that's even far superior and his offensive playing calling, then even like Bill Belichick, the coach for the Patriots. And our coach doesn't cheat either. But he's, truthfully, he's given us the speed, the endurance, and the agility, and the power to execute the exact game plan that he's given us. And that's what he wants us to do. And so God put this revelation on my heart a couple weeks ago. He said, Brian, I want you to do your best and let me do the rest but I want you to do what I've called you to do. And I pray that you and I are bearing a pleasing aroma as we do this, that attracts people to the message of Christ and doesn't repel them with all of this myriad of other things that we can share from the platform, whatever platform we have. Okay, so today we have an equation that I want to share with you. And it's not only how to fight, but it's how to fight and win the good fight. And it starts with knowing the kingdom that you're defending. I think this one is pretty straightforward, in principle at least. Verse 1 of the scripture in 2 Timothy 4 says, uh, Of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. So we know, in theory, we know what kingdom we're defending. It's the kingdom of heaven. But so many of us are actually defending the kingdom of self. You're the prince of politics, and only your worldview matters. You're Queen Nancy of Narcissia, and and as long as you present better than everybody else, you're feeling fine in life. Believe me, I have high standards for myself too. You're King Monty of Moneyville, and by God, you're going to get yours. So here's a little litmus test. If someone who wasn't a believer approached you and asked you to describe the kingdom of heaven to them, how would you describe the kingdom of heaven? I'm going to pause for a second and think about it. And I don't have an answer. I mean, I was working through this as I was preparing. I mean, I don't, I'm still, how would I describe that? So a non-believer comes to you and says, how would you describe to me the kingdom of heaven? What does that look like? Okay. Now, whatever image you have or whatever words come to mind, take what you have described and become an ambassador of that kingdom. What is an ambassador? Well, the dictionary says that an ambassador is a person who acts as a representative or promoter of another country. So what kingdom are you representing and promoting today? 
What kingdom are you an ambassador for or of? So once you know the kingdom that you're defending, it's important to know your opponent. And guys and gals, this may surprise you, but you're not actually fighting against people in this life. How do we know that? Well, Ephesians 6.12 explains it. And it says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, if you've been coming for a while, you'll know that we've covered Satan and hell and evil a lot during the last few years. But if you want me to paraphrase, I would tell you this. Where there's lies and there's deceit and there's fear, there's a higher power at work there. And so independent of who is working for your company or who is living next door to you or or who you're watching on TV that you absolutely despise, your opponent is actually the one that's driving the evil agenda in the hearts and minds of those men and women. And I don't think that you should be spending and I should be spending my time fighting against the order-taking soldier. I think we should be spending our time fighting against the leader of the army. And that's how we're going to get down to the root of what causes people to act a certain way. Keep in mind, if you abandon any of those people who are overcome with lies and deceit or whatever it is, if you abandon them and I abandon them, who's left to witness to them for the sake of Jesus Christ? And next, you need to know the desired outcome. Is yours to convert the people of this world to your political party or to your faith? Seven and eight, again, Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. And then he said, now in store for me is the crown of righteousness. I want a crown. And those of you that know me, I'm, I'm a highly competitive person, and I, and I hate to lose. I like to win. And, and thank God, through the years, he's taught me about not trampling over other people to, to win or to get my way. But I want a crown, and... and Maybe you're impatient like me and and you want your reward now or tomorrow or next week. But there's a reality that you need to come to grips with. That reality is is that a lasting impact can take a really long time. There are people in this church who didn't know the Lord and that would sit with me or that would sit with you over the course of years and, and you might just share stories to them about this God of the Bible. And and they're walking with Jesus now. And I, I didn't do it, but you, and, you may have not done it in your flesh, but we, we all bear witness for the stories of God and what he's done. In fact, my wife, who was here the first service, when, when we met 10 years ago, she didn't know Christ. And I was at a stage in my life where, by God, I was not going to attempt to convert somebody to Jesus just so I could marry them, although she was worthy of that. But I would just share stories with her, and sometimes two to three hours, and she would just listen. And I mean, anybody was willing to listen to me for longer than about 10 or 15 minutes. I knew I was going to marry them for sure, but she would literally, she would just listen. And I've said this many times before, I'm going to say it again, that people can argue with you about what is absolute truth. They can argue with you about if this Bible, this book is really true, but you know what they cannot argue with? Your tangible, real stories about the God that created you and me and the universe and what he has done in your life. They cannot I mean, they might call you crazy, but they cannot argue. If you said, this happened in my life, that's a true and factual historical example of a God that exists tangibly here with us today. 
So you got to keep sharing that. And so what are the goals then? What's the, what's the desired outcomes here of our battle? Well, simply put, I mean, there's a few things that come to mind. One, we want to wear the Christ, uh, crown of righteousness, as Paul said there in verse 8. We want to be told, well done, good and faithful servant, which Paul tells us in other scriptures that that's what we are to be told when we meet the Father face to face. To eliminate, illuminate the saving grace of Jesus and to be loving and generous. So, once you know the kingdom you're defending and you know your opponent and you know the desired outcome, the last thing is to know your strategy. You may have picked up that we defined the desired outcome before we defined the strategy. Why is that? Well, it's just, it's, I mean, just think about retirement. Like, if you don't know where you want to be or what you want things to look like in the end, you're not really sure what plan of attack to administer to get there, right? So we have to now then define our strategy probably thinking, okay, great, we get it, Sump, we're convinced. Now, what do we do? I want to read verses 2 through 5 to you one more time, and I want you to pick some key things out here. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. Say that with me. Great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head. Say that with me. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship and do the work of an evangelist, discharging the duties of your ministry. Now, I know for a fact, and I've watched this through the last nine years since we started this church, I know that when people are living in sin, they stop showing up to church a lot of the time. And that is one of the hardest things for us as, as a pastoral leadership to swallow because if you're living in sin, you should not stop coming to church. And, and, and oftentimes what they then do is we, we surround ourselves with people that are only willing to share with us the things that we want to hear. That's the last thing that should happen. And so I want to take a moment, I want to address the argument approach with you. And this is for those who think that you can argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven. When you think of a type of career that suits someone who argues well, what kind of professions come to mind? Lawyer? What else? Politician? Bingo. Maybe there are other things. Somebody in the first service said used car salesman, and I said, wow, dare you. I'm in the automotive industry. But, 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 but realistically, there are not many other professions in which someone wins by arguing. I mean, I came up with lawyer and politician myself. And if there are others, there's not many who are actually looked to and admired if they're good at arguing for the sake of their prof profession. They just, they're not very well respected by and large. And so the word says we are to rebuke or correct others. But first, I think we should probably think about when you are wrong, and I know that almost never happens, but when you are wrong, how would you best respond to somebody coming to you and approaching you about your errors and omissions? Do the words patient, level-headed, and servant-hearted come to mind to describe the type of person that you would want addressing those sins in your life? And, and I would also say that re referencing Scripture is super important. You know, Scott has talked about that recently, about knowing where in the Bible your reference point is instead of just saying the Bible says. It's really important to be able to back that up. And I would, 
I would sort of suggest and encourage that maybe you don't always lead with, hey, the Bible says, or even what scripture it is. Maybe sometimes lead with a common ground approach, an empathetic approach, a loving, tactful approach, and then usher in those scriptures to reference it. And if you're wondering, my favorite method of correcting and and, uh, helping somebody get through something is what we call the sandwich method. You you may have heard this before, and it's simply, it's very simple. It goes like this, good, bad, good. Sandwich, like a sandwich or an Oreo cookie, although I also think the middle part is good as well, but good, bad, good. So here's a practical example. We use this, I'm in the automotive industry, and we'll use this when we're talking to somebody about their car. We might say, uh, hey, Scott, thanks, thanks again for coming to see us. We were able to figure out, that we, you know, we, we, we identified that your car is doing the same thing you said. And by the way, there's a lot of really good things about your car. I mean, it's low mileage. You've kept it really, really well, and I want to just condone and, and support you, excuse me, uh, celebrate that, that win. So here's what needs to be done. We're going to make this fix. We'll have the parts by tomorrow. We'll go ahead and give you a four-year warranty, so you won't have to worry about this anymore. And we'll also get you free transportation assistance to get where you're going. Okay, so um, good, bad, good, sandwich. How would it look if you use that approach in evangelism? Well, you, you might say, hey, hey, Steve, listen, brother. I, first of all, I, I'm just so glad that you're in my life, and I, and I love you truly. I, I just want to make sure that you know that. But there's something that's been happening and that is important for me to share with you. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but this is what I've seen. And, you know, and then I know, I know how much you love Jesus, and I know that I would want to know the same things if... I was in your shoes, and so hope you hear this with love. Okay, sandwich method. Just something for you to try. If you're not sure how to correct and rebuke somebody, that's one way that you can do that and so that they know that you love and care about them. Because again, arguing them to your point and fighting with them, I'm not sure that that's going to be the most effective way. Take it for what it's worth. So in the early church, people were coming to Jesus left and right. Did you catch that? People were coming to Jesus no matter what their social or what their political affiliations were, and why were they doing that? we got to understand on this topic of arguing, if we go back a couple chapters in 2 Timothy, Paul said to keep reminding God's people about these things. Warn them before God against quarreling and words. In other words, arguing. He says it's of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. And he goes on further in verse 23, that was in 14, he goes in in 23, he says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, that's what it says in the word, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant, you and me, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, and opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God, not you and me, not man, will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. And then he finishes with saying, and that they will come to their senses. Guys, we can be the vessels and the vehicles to accomplish this, but we have to let God, through the tactical ways that he's implored us, to do his work and to ultimately make that happen. And I've got to tell you guys that it's not okay to scream and yell at people unless they're in the left hand on the highway doing less than five miles per hour over the speed limit. That's perfectly okay. Or if they're wearing Raiders jerseys or hats, you can feel free but it's not. And um, for whatever it's worth, I, I think it's okay for us to share our opinions. In fact, I think we should. But I hope and pray that before you start to voice the things that are 
of importance to you that you ask yourself, what does the Bible have to say? And is the priority of somebody knowing Jesus Christ overarching in what I'm about to share? Because if you're sowing seeds into a ground and you never water that ground, it's going to dry up. The seeds, the scriptures, right? The parable, the seed lands on dry ground and it falls into the cracks. There's never nurtured soil. There's never water to sow and to water that seed. And right now, as you look around this room, there are a myriad of political views in here right now. I can promise you there are two ends of the spectrum, believers in the same God in this room that believe very, very different things about politics. Here at Novation Church, we believe in majoring in the majors. What that means is that Jesus Christ came to earth from heaven, and that he was crucified, and that he was buried in a grave, and that he was resurrected, and that he will return again one day, and that he is the only way to God the Father. He is it. So those are the majors. Now, everything else, scripturally and extra-biblically, meaning outside of the Bible, everything else is open for debate. Those are what we call minor issues. They're not as important as the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and we all should be walking toward him. So we major on the majors, we minor on the minors. So no matter what our secondary opinions are, Paul implores of us to deploy gentleness and patience and most of all, love. All right, Brian, get to brass tacks here. Can you tell me what it is that will actually influence people to hear and heed what I have to say? Well, I want to cite... The author, Dale Carnegie, wrote a book that I'm, I'm sure many of you have read. It was called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I believe it was written in like the 1930s or something, way early in the 1900s. And, and as I've read that, I, I believe that many of those principles actually apply to us. They have not changed from a human psychology perspective over some 90 years. They have not changed. I want to cite two sections from that book. One is on criticism. And here's what he says about criticism. He says, it is futile. Because it puts a person on the defensive and usually makes him strive to justify himself or herself. Criticism is dangerous because it wounds a person's precious pride, it hurts their sense of importance, and it arouses resentment. Any fool can criticize, condemn, and complain. And most fools do. But it takes character and self-control to be understanding and forgiving. And here's just a little excerpt on what he says as far as dealing with people. Check this out. He says, when dealing with people, let us remember, we're not dealing with creatures of logic. We are dealing with creatures of emotion, creatures bristling with prejudices and motivated by pride and vanity. All of us, to some degree, that is true. If you want a dumbed-down version of it, I'll give you the second-grade version, okay? And it goes like this. A person won't care how much you know or what you knew until they Know how much you care. That absolutely applies today. And so if you have no rapport or no grounds of connection or common grounds with somebody, and all you want to do is put your foot on the gas pedal and accelerate to beat over to the head that you need to be, know to be true and right, I think you probably missed the mark. So have I. I want to show you something. This is probably going to be the most striking stick figure picture you've ever seen in your life. But I want to show you something that really, really helped me understand this concept of other people's realities. Okay, and it's a very simple picture. And if, if you've seen this before, that's great. I hope it drives 
something home for you. So here's probably going to be my not-so-circular lopsided sideways circle. This is the earth. And you have people on the earth. We've got a person standing here. Okay? And, and this is what they can see in their geography. This is, let's call this the grass in front of their house. What color is this person's grass? It's red. On the opposite end of things, on the other side of the earth, you might call this Australia or Asia or wherever the bottom of the earth is, right? You've got another person standing there. And they have some geography. They, they, they have some... See, I can catch. Anyways, I'll just do it like this. They, they, what color is their grass? It's blue. And you know, just throw everything everywhere. Standing right here is Jesus. Jesus has the ability to see both of the lawns, both of the geographies. And he, he, he'll walk over, he'll stand with this person and say, you know what? It's clear to me, neither of us are colorblind, it's clear to me that your grass is red. And then Jesus will take the time to walk all the way over here and he'll stand with this person upside down. He turned green now. And he stands there and he says, you know what? I can see that your grass is blue and I understand that. And Jesus did this when he walked the earth. He, he found a place, a way to connect with somebody outside of condemnation and he related to them and, and he, he showed them love. And I just wonder if you and I were to do that, to go to stand on somebody else's lawn for a while and to understand what their lawn looks like. You're not going to probably change their reality, but you know what you can do? You take out a little can of spray paint and you can show them, just, you know, after you admire their view, you can say, hey, I just want to show you. Maybe you've never seen a red lawn. Here's what it looks like. You might notice that I chose red and blue intentionally there, okay? Maybe it helps you, maybe it doesn't. But the whole point I'm trying to make is, is that We have a choice. We have a lot of choices in life. And if you don't wake up in the morning compelled to live a noble life and one that is fighting the good fight because Paul and Jesus and God said to, then do it because it actually softens the heart of men and women and it actually takes them to a place where you can make a good and lasting impact on their life. And so the last question I want to leave you with today is, this. Who in your life needs you to come alongside them and establish a relationship of love so that you can grab their hand and walk them gently across that bridge to the other side and show them Jesus and thoughts, opinions about what an eternal perspective really looks like? So that's your challenge for the week, and I want you to be able to try to answer that question as we go, okay? So let's pray together, and we'll dismiss. Lord, we know how much you care, at least we see that in scriptures. And, 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 we, and we see and we acknowledge today the bridge that you built between heaven and the unseen and this real tangible life that we live. And you did that by sending Jesus here to earth with an opportunity that whoever believes in him, you said, will have everlasting life, the, the answer to every problem and every hurt and every pain. And Lord, I ask of you and I pray today that if anybody doesn't know what an awesome, loving, gracious, just God you are, that they would know and accept that today. 
that as your people, that we can speak with truth and conviction, that we can rebuke and correct, that we can guide people to truth and, and reality, but that we do it with love and grace and gentleness, gentleness, and that we advance the kingdom of God, opposing the enemy, but praising and bringing glory to you, the God of the Bible, the creator of all this universe. In Jesus' name, we ask it be done. Amen.